Episode 74, David Novak, Storyteller's Compass, Narrative as Guide. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. I am Brother Wolf. I am so thrilled that you have made your way here with us, that you have come here, because the world out there is full of distractions. Those distractions can drive us away from the thing we love, which, of course, I hope you have in common with me, that love of storytelling. So put the world aside. Put the world aside. Put those distractions aside and come and focus here with us. Take that cloth and help us to to brighten and to shine the ideas that we will talk about tonight. Help us to to bring clarity where there may be cloudiness or fog. You know, for tonight I am very I am thrilled to bring you. I am thrilled to bring to you tonight. David Novak, and we are going to talk about the Storyteller's Compass, Narrative as Guide. David is a storyteller who I have admired from afar for many years. He's the 2002 Circle of Excellence winner from the National Storytelling Network. He has appeared at the National Storytelling Festival in both 2003 and 2008. Um, He's appeared at many national festivals throughout the country, and he has set a standard as a storyteller that many other storytellers talk of him highly. And I, I have to say that when I told a storyteller's name, what her name is, oh, I, you know, I'm so-and-so's coming on the show or so-and-so, I said, oh, yeah, David Novak. And they're like, David Novak! <laughs> and they were really excited. I think there is a lot of respect for his work and for the body work he's created. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show, David. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Eric. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to tell you that previous guests have told me that I come across as so optimistic and so excited about storytelling, they can't believe that this is my real personality. And I I just want you to to warn you that this is, in fact, actually completely true. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm so delighted. That's great. It's infectious. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us tonight? Of course I do. There was once a man among the very first people who had cows that were marked black and white like day and night. He loved his cows. Every morning they gave him such sweet milk and sweet cream so that every day he traveled far to find sweet grazing for them. He would take them to the fields and let them graze their fill, bring them home, lock them safe in the crawl, and then he would sleep. And as he slept, he would dream of all the sweet cream those cows would give him in the morning. But one morning... He went to milk his cows and found they were dry. They had no milk. They had no cream. And he thought, I have not been a good enough master. I must find them greener pastures. And so he searched farther and found sweet green grazing for them. And when they were full and fat, he brought them home and locked them safe in the crawl. And then again he slept. And again he dreamt of all the sweet cream he would enjoy in the morning. But the next morning, again, they were dry. So again he traveled far and saw them fatten, and then brought them home and locked them safe. And again he dreamt, but again his cows were dry. So he became suspicious, and he did as he had done before. But that night he did not sleep. Instead he crept to the place where his cows were kept, and he watched them all night. He watched them all night. He watched them and late into the night he saw a bright star appear at the far edge of the world. It rose swiftly up into the heavens until it reached its zenith above his cows, and then as he watched from his hiding place, amazed, he saw a long ladder of light descend from that star, descend from the sky, descend to his cows. Then as he watched from his hiding place and chanted, 
down that long ladder of light there came many beautiful women, carrying with them baskets, going among his cows, milking them dry, and carrying the milk back up into the sky. While he rushed out of his hiding place, he called, Stop! Thieves! and tried to catch them, but they were swift, and they swiftly climbed away from him. Yet he was quick enough to catch the last of the women by the ankle as she tried to climb away. He would not let go. And so her sisters up above pulled the ladder behind them, and that one woman from the sky fell to the earth. And the man said, Woman, you have taken from me, you owe me. And the woman said, You're right, I'm sorry. I will stay here and I will work for you and I will pay this debt that I owe to you. And the man said, That is fair. And so the man from the earth and the woman from the sky worked side by side for many days, caring for his cows, and never again was he bothered by thieves in the night. But the day came when the man came to the woman and he said, Woman, you have paid your debt to me. You are free to go. But if I could have my wish, you would choose to stay. For I have grown fond of you as we have worked together these many days, and I would be most happy if you would agree to be my wife. And the woman said, I was hoping you'd say something like that. I would enjoy being your wife. This is a good world. You are a good man. I could be happy here. I will marry you if you will make me a promise. Name it, he said. She said, As you see, I carry with me this basket I bring from the sky. I keep its lid firmly fit upon it. You must promise me never to look inside this basket unless I first bid you to do so. And the man thought, (laughs) Women. (laughs) Women are so silly. Such a simple thing to promise. Such an easy thing to promise. And the man said, I promise. And so they were married. And they lived happily together, caring for their cows, and soon began to grow fat on sweet cream. But you know what it's like with a secret. Every day that basket stood there. Every night that basket stood there. Never was it opened, never was it mentioned. And the man began to think, What's with the basket? What is she keeping from me? Why doesn't she trust me? Why should I trust her? And then he began to think, This is my house. She is my wife. This is my basket. And one day, when she was out and he was in, he went to where the basket stood, lifted the lid, and looked inside. (laughs) And he began to laugh. And at the sound of his laughter, his wife came in and said, Husband, you have broken your promise. Wife, said the man. Oh, wife. (laughs) What is this terrible secret that had you in fear and me in distrust? Yes, it is true. I have broken the promise. I have looked in the basket, but there is nothing to fear. For there is nothing here. As far as I can see, this basket is empty. (laughs) Oh, you are so silly. Women are so silly. (laughs) She said nothing. But replacing the lid, lifted the basket, turned and walked away. And never again was she seen in this world. And ever after that, that man wandered sleepless at night, staring at the sky, looking for something he lost. Now some people say she left him because he broke a promise, and a promise is a promise. But some people say she left him because when he looked inside that basket, he could see nothing there. And it still happens that way. We are, all of us, sometimes blind to the treasures of others. And that is the story of the Sky Woman's Basket. Where does it come from? I first came across it in the writings of uh, Sir Lawrence Vanderpost, who, as you may be aware, is a South African 
uh, writer, documentarian, and storyteller, and spent a lot of time in the Kalahari among the Hung or the Bushmen, uh, documenting their their culture and their life habits. He writes about that story in a book called The Heart of the Hunter. It is sometimes falsely attributed to the Ung or the, the Bushmen. It is uh, in that book, actually, he references the story uh, as a memory he has. As a child growing up, growing up in South Africa, he had a nanny who was a Zulu who told him that story. So I suspect it is a Zulu story. It doesn't make sense as a Bushman story because they did not, among other things, uh, domesticate cattle. That's how the story comes to me. Um, and then, as I've told it to you, is, is kind of how I've uh, how it's evolved in my thinking and in my uh, in the time I've spent with that story. Other storytellers have referenced that story too, um, and they make different things of it. I wanted to use that story because what I'd like to talk with you about tonight, what I hope we'll be talking about, has something to do with. Uh, the problem in that story, which is, uh, I like that story because it's enigmatic. It's not a story that gives one a strict or direct answer or a lesson. I mean, it has an idea there that I think is very universal and true, but it's the problem, too, of perception, of looking into the basket, trying to see something there, when at first we might see nothing. And I think that that's in some ways, a, a, you know, that is the storyteller's problem. Uh, that is a modern problem um, related to stories in particular. Uh, I, I was raised, as perhaps you were too, uh, many of us were, raised with this idea that pervades education about mythology, folklore, and stories, especially pre-literate stories, stories from cultures that are, are, are before the advent of literacy. The lesson goes something like this. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. Long ago, people told stories because they were ignorant and afraid they did not understand the world around them. They heard the thunder in the skies, and it, it frightened them. The, when the sun set and the darkness uh, shrouded them, they were afraid. And so they told stories to explain away these things. Uh, nowadays, of course, because we have science and we have an understanding of what causes these things and the elements around us, we understand more and we know better, and we have no longer any need of these fanciful childlike uh, stories. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I think Einstein has told us that we need them all the more. Yeah, I think so. But, the, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, that narrative still exists in our culture, that idea about uh, about the stories of the people who were before us. There is an idea, of course, because they were the early civilizations, the first peoples, um, they were, we look at them evolutionarily and say, well, they were childlike. They were primitives. They were prime first. You know, primitive has come to connote uh, somebody who was less sophisticated than we are today. And so we, we kind of look at them or we look at their stories often and uh, dismiss them uh, in much the same way that man in that story dismisses the sky woman's possession. He looks in the basket, sees nothing there, and therefore presumes First of all, that it's empty, and second of all, that that emptiness means it's worthless or it's pointless. And I think we sometimes look at the stories, or, or our culture in general at large, has looked at a lot of these stories and said, well, pff, they're empty. There's nothing there. However, science itself uh, reminds us that uh, if at first you don't see something, look, look again. The things that we see or perceive through science, we perceive through the aid of uh, any of a variety of instruments. Uh, the microscopic world, the macroscopic universe, uh, all of these things we could not perceive were it not for um, instruments or tools that help us enhance our perception of what's around us. And I think uh, that in many ways when we look at the stories of others, um, or the stories that exist uh, uh, in the, um, that remain with us uh, through the millennia, uh, the challenge for the storyteller is to look into them the way that man looked into the basket, but not with the assumption that if he sees nothing there, it's empty, but with the assumption that if we see nothing there, we're not looking quite in the best way, that we need to work on our perception and try to see again, um, because we know something must be there, even though we don't see it at first. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And to me, what I hear you talking about is the art of listening. Yes, in many ways, it is the art of listening. I think... The art of listening is not strictly an oral behavior, 
aural in terms of what goes into the ear. Uh, certainly, hearing, it can be distinguished from listening. I hear you, but I may not have really listened to what you're telling me. Um, listening is, is a reading behavior. Now, I think, actually, we can talk about reading as a form of listening. Um, certainly, when I read a book, I'm listening to it. I'm kind of hearing it, you know, and I come across words that I can't pronounce, even though I'm not speaking it out loud, it just you know, it, they become obstacles until I have in my own inner ear a way to pronounce a given foreign new word. Um, it stops my reading. Um, so that when I read the text, it's as if I'm listening to what the author is saying to me. And that's a kind of listening behavior, too. It's interesting, too. When you, you read a book and then you may listen to a reading by the author or you may hear a character in a movie who's in that book and then you read the book again and for me the voice will change that's in my head you know because i've had this training from the movie or from the from the reading by the author and the tone of the entire book has changed even though you know the words are the same you know my mind hmm. has interpreted has has seized upon this experience yeah, uh, certainly, uh, you know, we can be informed or some might say infected <laughs> by the depictions of the stories that we, we read. My own son, Nicholas, uh, who turned seven next week, um, this past holiday season did a beautiful performance, wonderful, uh, ecstatic performance of uh, Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, um, yet he continued uh, adamantly to insert into his performance elements of the story that were added for the uh, Chuck Jones cartoon animation of the story. Ah. So, uh, you know, I couldn't, um, I couldn't convince him or encourage him or cajole him to get back to the original text. Uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, for him... Uh, it's been rewritten by that. Of course, Dr. Seuss himself, Ted Geisel, had a hand in the rewriting of it. But, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting how um, that was more charismatic than the book itself. Hello, this is author and award-winning storyteller Diane DeLaskasis. You are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. Happy tales to you. This whole idea of how stories inform our lives, which is kind of what we're talking about, like how an early story can shift an entire direction of someone's life and their purpose. Well, yes, it can. Or it can, it can be also like the first story, The Sky Woman's Basket, in another way. The basket sits there. It sits there in the corner. Never is it opened. Never is it mentioned. It just sits there. And we exact we have these baskets, these sky women's baskets. They you know they abound in our houses, in our lives, in ourselves. We carry them with us all the time, and frequently they just sit there. And every now and then we trip upon them. We say, "Oh, what's this?" We open it up and we say, "Oh my goodness, we find a treasure in it." I'll give you an example. When my oldest was just a a year old in his first year of life. We were going back to work, and we needed to have some home daycare uh, for Jack. And we were very fortunate to find uh, this wonderful woman, uh, the wife of a teacher that uh, worked at the same school that my wife worked at. And Lori was her name. And she had three children of her own and was a wonderfully loving, creative mother. And she wanted some extra income, so she got a license and started a home daycare. And Jack was her first and only uh, for that first year client. Uh, Lori was wonderful with him, and uh, I at that time was doing some work in arts education for the San Diego Institute for Arts Education, which dealt with uh, aesthetic literacy based on the philosophies of Maxine Green, which is something we can talk about more later perhaps. But I was doing a project with a local school in which we wanted to have the art students do some visualizations of a story and compare them with my rendition of a story and we tried to find a story that maybe everybody would know, and we thought, well, maybe let's let's work with The Three Billy Goats Gruff. That was a story I liked, and I felt that it had something to say about coming of age. And uh, But I wasn't sure whether that was a story anybody knew anymore. So that day when I went to pick up Jack, I paused 
for a moment, and I said to Lori, um, Hey, Lori, do you know the story of the three billy goats gruff? And she said, Oh, it's the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't expecting to hear that, so I said, Oh, I sat down and said, Tell me, uh, what do you mean by that? And she explained. She said, Well, I'm the oldest of three girls in my family. We were raised uh, as basically army brats. My dad was career military, and we moved from base to base throughout our childhood. And as kids, we would play the Three Billy Goats Gruff as a game. As a, we'd play act the story, and because I was the oldest, I always had to be the biggest Billy Goat Gruff. And my dad was the troll. And then she said, it's taken me all my life to having three children of my own to finally get past his high expectations, his standards, his disapproval of my choices in life and to live the life that I want to live. And I was just blown away. I discovered, wow, you know, here's a simple folk tale, a Norwegian folk tale and, uh, about these billy goats, and yet it became uh, a metaphor to help this woman understand her life and perhaps even to make certain choices and feel good about the choices that she made in her life. But but is it the wait wait, wait this is important here is is it the mirror or is it the pool I mean is it is is the story did the story create the life or did the you know was it unconsciously affecting the life or is it just a way of her looking at her life you know what I mean uh, that's an interesting question of course. Um, and, and I don't know if it's an answerable question. That's a good question. I will say that it caused me to reflect. As a that Jack was my um, my first child, and I was a new father, and I was in, you know embarking for the first time on the on the path of fatherhood. And I was hearing a story about a father. <laughs> I was hearing about a, a story about a father who was a troll for this young woman. But at the same time, that father had the good sense to get down on his hands and knees and play act uh, a story for his children, a story that would eventually turn out to be the story that would help his daughter become independent of him. And I, thought, I felt that there was a really interesting paradox, a kind of a beautiful paradox in that, that, the, that the, I realized that fatherhood, parenthood, meant that you had to be, you were going to be, whether you wanted to or not, the ogre, the troll, the giant, and at the same time, you could also be the eccentric uh, man in the woods with magic beans for sale. <laughs> that, in the same gesture, the father was presenting her with an ogre and also presenting her with magic beans, with with a with a gift that would help her get on with her life. And the way I heard it from her. You know, she had received that story in childhood. Perhaps if she'd had a slightly different childhood or different experience with her father, maybe she wouldn't have chosen that story uh, to to explain her life. Maybe she would have chosen another story. Uh, maybe there were other stories there. But we, um, they're like the Sky Woman's Basket. You know, you, we, they're, they're, they're with us. They're all around us. They're all with us, and they're waiting. And, uh, and that particular story opened up for her. And presented itself to her, presented herself to her, uh, gave her a way of perceiving not just the story, but herself and the life that she was living. So, how do we as storytellers, how do we know which stories can serve this purpose? How do we know what, you know, what to bring to the table that can feed this need? We can never know truly for certain that the story we're telling is the right exact story that's needed but our art does involve the quest if you will to tell the right story at the right time for the right reason i think sometimes we become distracted especially the marketplace distracts us uh, distracted with trying to tell the unique story uh, the story nobody's ever heard before, the um, the fresh story, uh, uh, the novel story, and we live in a culture that uh, has a very uh, an unbridled appetite for novelty. But I think that it can distract us from our purpose. A story like the Three Billy Goats Gruff, many storytellers might avoid or pass over because they might consider it 
passe, you know, fam- too familiar, uh, too ordinary to bother with. And yet that might be the very story that holds the key to unlock somebody's life. I think the skills that a storyteller uh, that I try to teach my students and that I hope that storytellers develop over time is the ability to uh, listen for uh, a line of relationship to a story that we know. To, uh, and that means, therefore, of course, you mentioned listening earlier, and I think most of my colleagues uh, and would agree that good storytelling begins with good listening, and even the act of telling a story, even if I'm doing all the talking, throughout that act, I'm listening. I'm, a, I'm, I'm doing it because I'm attending to my listener. Now, one thing I, I will say about increasing the odds, if you will, that we are telling the right story is that the more stories we know, the, the more ways we can understand ourselves and our, the world we live in and our experience. A cognitive science looks at this and looks at what is intelligence, and that, well, a large school of thought concludes that intelligent behavior means having stories and being able to match or associate the stories of experiences and ideas that you have, that you know, to match those with the experiences you're having now and make connections between them. And it's by connect, comparing and contrasting and relating experience with knowledge, stories, um, that you build models of understanding. Now, if you only know one story, you will still use that story to understand the world around you. But as Maslow said, if the only tool that you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So it follows, then, that the more stories you have, the more different ways you can understand the things that you experience. So the more stories we know, the more stories we have, the more stories we put beside an experience, the broader the possibility, the, the more facets we bring to the way we understand an experience. And I think, as a process for storytellers, that that also applies to trying to look into the Sky Woman's basket. If I want to try to understand a story, one of the things that I'm going to try to do is put that story into relationship with other stories. We might even look at the Sky Woman's basket itself as a story. How do we understand that story? What do we make of that story? Well, how is it like or not like other stories that we know? Let's see. It's a little bit like Jack and the Beanstalk. I mean, Jack and the Beanstalk has cows, cattle, and, a, and an economy of cattle, and it has uh, treasure, and it has a uh, ladder from the earth to the sky and back again. And it has an idea that the heavens above us, the sky at a distance, has contains with it mysteries, treasures, values, valuables that maybe uh, would be good to have on earth. And the Skywinds Basket compares also with Pandora's Box. Pandora has this uh, box that she's uh, curious about, and... Uh, Is she going to open it up? Is she going to break the prohibition and open the box and look inside? And uh, in a sense, there's ways that it's like that. And you see, when we put these stories side by side, they begin to inform on each other, and they allow me to try to understand uh, the core story itself, not by studying it only, but by looking at it in relationship with other stories. There's this idea we talked about earlier that you have to bring something new to the table, but then there's also this idea that that there are a certain amount of stories and that, you know, they're like, like books. Like, you know, there's, um, you know, Kill the Father Story 6 and there's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know uh, there's Bring Back the Guy from the Dead Story 4. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. I don't really, I'm not really into this way of thinking about stories. But do you find this true in your practice that there is a commonality to to the source of stories of to the the themes of stories? Well, there's a commonality to the elements of story, um, but don't confuse that with the themes of stories. This is kind of what Tolkien uh, discusses when he writes about uh, fairy tales in his um, Tree and Leaf essay. Um, he suggests that it's a mistake for folklorists to say, uh, because they share common elements, that the story of Eros and Psyche is the same story as Beauty and the Beast um, or White Bear Whittington. Uh, yes, they're made up of some of the same elements, uh, but they each are combined 
in such ways that they also offer something new to the conversation, to the discourse. And that's what um, Italo Calvino would refer to uh, as combinatorics, using an idea coming from mathematics. Uh, combinatorics is the study of different combinations, equations, A plus B equals C, and so on. And a good example of what, com- what I mean by combinatorics is spelling. You have an alphabet made up of set uh, symbols, a limited number of symbols, and yet with those elements, those individual elements, letters, um, you can combine them and recombine them endlessly to make uh, different words and to reveal or release different meanings. In fact, when we learn to spell, I believe we're learning rudimentary magic that, uh, you, because it is a basic principle of magic that when you put together the right ingredients in the right order, you will release a spell. And that's exactly what you do with letters. Take the three letters T, R, and A. You can make art, rat, and tar. And yet they're made up the same three letters. Now, you won't tell me that those three words mean the same thing. Are we doing that as storytellers with mythology in a way? We're taking these various images and we're drawing forth different meanings. Yes, I think we are. I think that when we tell a story, we are engaged in many ways in in a spelling behavior. We are spelling. Uh, We are casting a spell, but we are casting a spell not in terms of... um, making our listener, you know, creating a hypnotic trance, although there is a sort of storytelling trance that the listener can go into. But we're casting a spell by taking an element, putting it next to another element, and then another element or another idea, another storytelling event, 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 and when they all are uh, finished, when they're all lined up, poof, suddenly there's something, an experience, something that's greater than the individual story itself. An idea or an emotion is released. Um, I told the story of Skywoman's Basket. This happened, that happened, this happened, that happened. People are listening. They're going, okay, okay, okay. And then this last thing happened, and then, oh, oh, ah. A spell has been cast. There's also something else you're doing which I find fascinating. Some storytellers, when they tell, they have a tendency to speak faster. Mm -hmm. And I find that the storytellers who've been around for a while, who've really put the time into the art form, they speak slower. You know, and I noticed that when you were telling the story, you really used the silence. You really worked the space between the words. You know? And I, I just want to talk about that. There's something, maybe it's a confidence you have that the, that the listener is following you. I mean, one storyteller I interviewed spoke about it's just important to believe in the audience, that you have to believe the audience will follow you or they're not going to at all. There's something about the way that you were telling there that, that evoked a sense of faith in the, in the audience following along with you. I agree that you should believe in the audience, and I would go further and say that you should be well that your intentions should involve the audience in many ways you are stroking or grooming the audience Um, if we always remember that we're telling a story for the benefit of the listener then we overcome any of a number of obstacles that might get in our way that involve being um, too self-conscious self-aware we're doing we're doing this because we are in a a stroking relationship with our listener where we're attending to them and creating an experience for them. That said, I like to be very eclectic in my own storytelling. I like to tell a variety of different types of stories and I like to experiment with style because my my background that I that I bring into storytelling is study in theater arts and that means really a variety of of, uh, traditions and styles. The story of the Sky Woman's Basket, I tell with a particular kind of rhythm, I think, uh, style. There are other stories in which I might engage in uh, greater verbal pyrotechnics. And that can sometimes be fun, you know, to, to go on a little roller coaster ride in which the language, the experience of the language is uh, more than just the meaning of the words. But there's something so 
simple and straightforward about the events of the story of the Sky Woman's Basket and the ideas there that um, I almost see them as a series of uh, woodcuts, you know, <laughs> as, as if I'm giving you this image and then that image and then that image. I should also point out that I started out in silence. Uh, I was very much involved in the mime movement of the 60s and the early 70s. I, I used to work as a, a mime artist uh, working in silence. And when I began storytelling in 78, um, it was like I got my voice back. Uh, it was like I discovered language all over again. So it's the work I do with language, with the spoken word, is very much grounded on silence. So as, a, as someone who spent many years as a mime working... What are some lessons of the body that you could bring to other storytellers? One of the things I noticed in mime, and I found to also be true in storytelling, is that the thing that elevated the work to the level of art it had nothing to do with technique. Some of the uh, most shoddy mimes in terms of technique had some of the most compelling material that first and foremost was having something worth saying or something worth sharing, was having an idea or a, a great sort of... A personal commitment or uh, a style. Personal style wasn't about technical excellence. Technique is uh, a tool. It's not an end. Also, in terms of working with the body, what I what mime teaches me is that voice is movement. When you speak, you are using your muscles. It's an act of movement. When you listen to sound, it's as if there is something moving, and that sound is to movement what silence is to stillness. Even if I'm not moving, but I'm making sounds, it's as if something is moving. But when all of a sudden the sound stops, it's as if all has become still. Silence is an interesting place to arrive in a story. The uh, the mime dramatist uh, Jean-Louis Barrault in his uh, memoirs, Memories for Tomorrow, says that the greatest moments in theater happen in silence. The late Harold Pinter, who we lost in the past year, a wonderful, brilliant play playwright, who worked a great deal with silence, says that silence happens when it suddenly becomes impossible to speak. When we arrive at silence in a story, among other things... Silence is an opportunity to feel. Now, there's emotion happening when I'm speaking that always is going on, but even so, when I'm using language, when I'm using words, and you are listening, you are intellectually busy. You're listening to the definitions of the words, to what they denote, as well as what they connote. But when I stop, you can turn your brain off and feel what's going on in the story. So we're talking about the compass that people use to follow set their life by. And I was thinking about, you had this story that involves how how we as tellers can examine and look more closely and also how our culture can look more closely. But I, I was wondering, is there a story that you feel like exemplifies how a storyteller should live their life? Is that the story you told tonight or is there another story you could just mention in passing? How a storyteller should live his or her life. Like I was I'm trying. Of, I'm still trying to answer that question myself. Uh, I'm looking for all <laughs> manner of stories that will help me help me understand that. Um, there are times when when I think, uh, well, you know, I'm I'm trying to do what I feel uh, called to do. <laughs> I still don't quite know how to pay the bills, but uh, <laughs> how a storyteller should live their life. I think. You know, many of my colleagues, my generation of storytellers in this storytelling revival are arriving at some of the same considerations uh, at this point, and that's, that's apparent in many of the interviews that you've done. Certainly, the concern about voicing, uh, being a voice in the world, in a culture, and through voice, not only giving stories, but maintaining discourse for me i think that's an important role of storytelling in the present day in the present place 
I do not consider myself in any way a traditionalist. I'm less in concerned about oral tradition than I am about oral culture. I think oral culture is one of the founding behaviors of our democracy, uh, what it means to be American, and the maintenance and the um, nurturance of public discourse is an important function uh, that storytellers have taken on or can take on. And many of us are seeing that more and more clearly as we do more and more of our work, that there is something uh, essential uh, in the act of telling stories that is distinct from merely delivering stories. And the storyteller's compass my con is my way of trying to explore that, trying to um, take the focus off of story and put it more on telling. And there's a lot of talk uh, uh, about story. Everybody talks about story. Some, uh, they like to uh, talk about how essential story is for us. And in education, in the classroom, we like to say, you know, the stories are so important to education. And even Kendall Haven's wonderful book, Story Proof, is all about story. And I sort of feel that that's a self-evident proposition. Saying that stories are important to education is like saying that breathing is important to education. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, if you're not breathing, there's nothing to learn, right? I mean, you can't get away from stories. And if all of us yourself, myself, all of we who are involved in this storytelling movement, if we disappeared tomorrow, the world would not want for stories. So I don't think we should delude ourselves into thinking that um, we bring stories to the conversation. What we bring is conversation to the conversation. And that's where I think the focus needs to be on the second part of the word, telling. Wait a minute. Just a minute ago, you said that it's important to bring something worth saying. So yes, it is. you're saying that the story has to be really, really good. You have to have some well, good material. I think, yes, I think, I think stories, I absolutely think stories are important, but I think it's the saying that's, that's the primary role that we, we are addressing by being storytellers. Because if it's only about the story, then we'll just write books and let people read them. You know? But what we're really trying to do is to say the story, to tell the story, and this is where I think the word tell is, needs, needs uh, greater emphasis and scrutiny. So you're saying that we, we are here to break the barrier. We are here to break, we're not just on the television, we're not just, we're not just in a book, we are trying to create a different relationship. Yes, I, I would say so. It, to put it to, specifically to the art of storytelling with children, which is usually concerned with the art of storytelling and schooling, because that's where most of our children spend most of their time, I would say, you talk about breaking the barrier, I would say the storyteller is here to throw down the tyranny of the written word. As much as I love books, and I'm surrounded by them right now, even as I speak to you and as I use books, they can still become tyrannical especially when you're dealing with an educational a school culture, which has traditionally been, at least in my childhood it was, the, uh, based on the rule that one should read and write and not talk. And when we're trained to read and write and not to talk, what happens is that we are divorced from our very own language. We engender this idea that language, words, stories, and ideas um, exist in books, and we must go and access them rather than exist within us. And I'm sure many of our, your listeners have had the experience of watching a child who has, quote-unquote, written a story, okay, an original story. They made it up. They wrote it down on paper. Ask them to tell that story, and they can't without referencing what they wrote on the page. How could they have lost their voice so quickly? That which came from them no longer belongs to them. I think that that's not necessarily an intention, of certain traditional schooling practices. It's one of the byproducts. I think storytelling in the curriculum, then, is not just an adjunct to the reading and writing curriculum. It's something else altogether. Again, I come back to the word tell. The word tell has, is derives from the word tally, which means to make an accounting, which is why we have automatic teller machines. That's a behavior that they can do. They can tell out money. <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, and that's its first meaning. It also extends then to mean making a report. A tally is a kind of a report, and, and certainly uh, we can turn on CNN and get all the reporting that we want. There's a second, somewhat less tangible but more important definition to the word tell, which is significant for us as storytellers, and that means to discern, to find out, to perceive. 
When you sit down at a poker game, you look for the tell on the other players' faces, that which is going to reveal what's going on, what's hidden. Uh, when you go to the doctor and you don't feel well, the doctor takes your blood pressure, listens to your breathing, and tries to tell what's troubling you, tries to perceive what's not seen. And those are both actions like looking in the Sky Woman's basket. So looking into the basket means that one has to tell. One has to look in to see, to perceive. And so when you combine the two actions of reporting and discerning, what you get is lively discourse, which is what you and I are doing right now. I'm talking, you're talking, we're talking back and forth, and as we talk, we are also discovering or discerning or uh, revealing, finding out uh, ideas and building understanding and making sense. And the act of telling, then, is a kind of dynamic act. It's not simply recitation. You know, if it's all about story, I can memorize a story and recite it. Job done. But if I can separate the story from the text, I read the story, but I walk away and I think about it. What's that story about? I look into the story. I massage it. I, I, I try to perceive the story. And then I tell it. I talk. And I talk. And, and in talking the story out, I'm also discovering the story, an act that I would call discovery composition. That's a kind of, not only, it's not merely performance, but it's, an, it's a kind of active thinking. And because of our training with the written text, with reading and writing, we also have, I think, developed a, a false idea about thinking, that thinking is something one does before acting. You know, I, I think, I, I write it out, I plan it out, I script it out, and then I present it. Whereas the storyteller reminds us that you don't know what you think until you start talking. And that in order to find out what you think, and in order to work out a problem or to work out an idea and to discover where you're going, you have to start telling the story. It doesn't just all spring from your head fully formed. No, it doesn't. When we, when we teach our children to tell stories, ideally, we're teaching them not to recite stories, but we're teaching them to think out loud about a story and discover something in it that nobody has ever seen before. I feel like we've really covered this topic really well. Is there any last thoughts you're going to leave us with? I want to share something. Um, I was visiting my friend uh, many years ago, Marilyn Mearden, a storyteller in Providence, Rhode Island, and she had this quote tacked up on her kitchen wall from Agnes DeMille that has stuck with me ever since. And it said, Science has got us doing cartwheels in space. We have reached the moon. Can we reach the face across the kitchen table, or over the back fence, or across the railroad tracks? Have we ever thought of exploring the universe in the chair beside us, or the constellations locked in our own skulls? And I think the answer to that question is the storyteller. Einstein's dilemma, you know. <laughs> we can blow up the world, but can we, can we take care of each other? Yeah, right. This is Jim May. You're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. David, do you have an offer for us? You know, yes, I do. I have, um, I have a CD that I recorded some years ago, um, which is Notes on the Art of Storytelling, and which I invite the listener to think about stories as something that's organic rather than uh, made up of... Um, construction materials building a beginning and a middle and an end instead to think of a story as something that can grow with a series of actions and I have a recording called uh, The Garden Metaphor Notes on the Art of Storytelling and I'd be happy to make that available to say oh, the first 20 people that want to contact me I'll send them the CD and they can listen to stories and listen to thoughts on how to tell the story and make use of it I hope I also um Certainly, uh, I'm available, uh, as many of your guests are, to come and share stories and share the storytelling experience as I see it and to teach. Uh, the Storyteller's Compass is a workshop that I lead that has uh, been well-received by a variety of different uh, audiences. I've done it for the Imagineers at the Walt Disney Company, and I've done it... Uh, 
for uh, students at the university and uh, I've done it for librarians and for teachers and for creative writers and, as of course, for storytellers. And you can learn about that on my website, which is novateller.com. And something to keep in mind here, uh, and this really applies to all my guests, uh, but this one in particular too, uh, is it doesn't cost that much when you think about it. If you can find six people and you each put up, say, $200, suddenly you got $1,200 and you can shop around for a storyteller who might be just a state over um, who might come up for the day and do a workshop. It's, just, it's actually a lot more possible than you think. And I find yeah, that it's, there it's are a lot of... it's very easy to do. Yeah, and there are a lot of people around the country who are tellers who could really improve your professional presence. Yeah, we are mice among elephants. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are big businesses out there, big institutions, big corporations. Um, our strength is that we are small, and we have freedom of movement, we have uh, a lower overhead, we have fewer material needs... And so we can move easily, quickly, inexpensively, and accomplish things that elephants aren't capable of. And that's why elephants are afraid of mice. (laughs) I like that story. So I want to offer the audience, um, I've been offering this a lot recently, I know, so if you heard it recently, it's the same offer as the last couple shows. I recently completed, I'm very happy to tell you, my free e-course, The Zen of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. Um, it's actually a nine-part e-course, including some great resources, and, uh, and it's a well-written, simple, very simple e-course. Each, each email has a little story in it. I recently released it, and people have been writing me back telling me they're really enjoying it, so I know you'll enjoy it. So if you're interested, go to storytellingwithchildren.com backslash storytelling or ericwolf.org and click on the resource button and sign up on that page. Okay, Eric. One other thing that I was asked to mention. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do the uh, do the uh, the weekend. Going Deep Storytelling Retreat and happens in March, and I believe it's the uh, second weekend in March of this year. Now I realize this podcast may not be edited and online by then, so the opportunity may have passed this year, but... I expect that it will continue to be an annual event, and this is an opportunity to really, as the title says, go deep. I'll be presenting the Epic of Gilgamesh, and uh, the retreat's a wonderful experience for uh, long-form traditional stories, three different storytellers. Each night, one of the storytellers gives a long traditional story, and the following morning, there's an opportunity to really dig into that story with the storyteller and spend time in a conference with them. And then the following night, a new story is presented, and it goes in that pulse over the weekend. It takes place at uh, in Bethlehem, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. And you can find out more about it at uh, www.goingdeepstories.com. And it is an amazing event, I have to say. It is really an amazing event. I haven't been, but I've heard about it. Did you tell Gilgamesh in Boston at Brother Blue's Circle? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't been I up must to have watched somebody else do it. New England in a long time, but uh, um, I am currently touring with Gilgamesh, and that is available in my repertory, and I'm in, enjoying it quite a bit. And I continue to find, as I look into that story, endless um treasures uh, that uh, um, I think are worth recovering in the present day. So do you have any final words for us for the international storytelling movement? Well, I would like to say that um, on the one hand, I I sometimes feel that we we get a little polarized. On the one hand, we say, you know, we should be teaching children to tell stories and not putting ourselves up as, um, as performers. On the other hand, I see the growing uh, movement of the platform entertaining storyteller, and I've been both. I've been a teaching artist and a quote-unquote platform teller uh, throughout my career, and I think um, if we only teach the children to tell stories, that's, um, that got a, has a built-in paradox. That means that um, they're going to grow up and be adults and not be able to tell their stories, right? That, so that we need to we need to integrate the artist, the performing artist who is a storyteller of some years and experience and wisdom with the 
student who needs to be needs the verbal bath of the storyteller needs to be immersed in their stories uh, uh, telling experience and then we also need to uh, nurture in our children in our students not only the ability to con a story but the ability to tell a story and to use that story to find their way through life I feel like we've been really talking about the art of listening, but in a different way. We've been talking about how you change the way you perceive something. It's interesting to me because we've also been talking about the value we place on things. And it's kind of a given that as storytellers there are certain values that we all seem to hold for the most part. You know, we, we all have this love of our elders. I, I've met, mm-hmm. I've never really met someone who considers themselves a storyteller, and when an old person who's much older than them starts speaking, they don't all stop and orient towards that person. Oh, yes, of course. You know? um, we, we, we have another value, which is that we, we value this thing that is invisible, the story. You know, it's not something you can... You can really put in a box. I mean, you can write it down, I suppose, but but when it's in your head, it's it's just this thing that that's not really measurable in some sense. It's invisible, like what was in that that basket at the beginning yes. of this interview. And and we also, as storytellers, we also love to be the center of attention. <laughs> we love to be up there. And we're caught in this in this in this twist of fate. We both we love to be there in the center of attention and on stage and getting that attention. And then also we love to hear the audience hearing us. Which is different, I think, than say an actor or or what I imagine it's like for somebody who's in the movies or you know, there's this there's this this wall that goes down. Yes, I, I, I think that storytelling, what storytelling offers the actor and the performer is a chance to recover their own voice. Um, now, if you just want people to look at you and applaud you, go ahead and do a cover song of somebody else's work and get on American Idol. The storyteller is doing something, I think, that is crucial to our culture, which is speaking from their own voice, putting their words, their beliefs their emotions and their thoughts into the public discourse. And in that way, not merely presenting or performing, but actually contributing. Yes. And there's something about about what we've been talking about, about turning the invisible into the visible, of, of spinning gold out of hay or straw. That's alchemy, of course. Uh, A lot of us are intrigued by that idea. I would say um, perhaps this will offer you another uh, another final thought. In the present day, we've recognized that um, certain habits uh, or appetites that we have urge us to consume large quantities of salt, uh, fat, and sugar, uh, items which once upon a time in our history were... Uh, scarce in our environment and therefore we were driven to seek them out. Now we can satisfy those appetites to such excess that it can cause us harm and we've recognized that and so therefore we've instituted uh, protocols of behavior, uh, ways in which to um, exercise, uh, perform aerobics, um, lower our cholesterol and all these sorts of things. Well I suspect that in in a similar way we all carry in us a, a deep rooted appetite for images and for narratives and uh, as a result we have been able to create an environment that feeds that appetite to excess everywhere we turn we're inundated with images and the danger is that if we feed on those to excess we will suffer the illnesses of the fatted mind, the illnesses of a short attention span, um, of depression, of confusion. And in some ways, to take the story and to tell it, to massage it, to look at it, to perceive it, and to make it meaningful, to tra- transform the straw into gold, allows us to 
to make to, to to keep the mind healthy. And in some ways then storytelling is aerobics for the soul and for the scattered brain. I like that. So even though small children in Central Park who gather to hear stories every Saturday during the summer run screaming from the area when they hear me say it. This is Brother Wolf, and you've been listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.